Welcome to Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's podcast. We'd love to worship with you today. Beloved of the Lord, it is a joy and a grace to be with you this morning. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the gift that it is to be able to come together before you in worship. And we thank you for the gift of your word and how you reveal yourself to us through your word. And so I ask that this time this morning that you would speak to us, that you would open our hearts and our hands to receive you, to honor you, to love you, to glorify you. And Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight this morning. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I'm bringing you along with me this morning on a journey through some thoughts which have been on my heart for quite a while. It was probably 12, 15 months ago that I felt the Lord press on my heart a desire to trust him more. And if I'm honest, I'm not sure I fully understood at first what the issue was. I've been a Christian my whole life. I've grown up in church, and trust just feels like one of those basic things you learn about in Sunday school. But even as I say I trust God, I catch myself clinging to other things instead of him. I cling to other people, to financial stability, to physical health, and I worry about what will happen if those things fall away, if I don't have enough money, or if a friendship takes a different turn than I anticipate. And it brings these questions of, am I going to be okay? Am I going to be okay if I struggle or if I feel alone? And so then that exposes this deeper question, right, of what does it mean to truly trust God? What do I expect the fruits of my trust to be? Because I'd really like to think that God promises a comfortable life, but when I look to his word, I see a different story. The Gospel of Matthew says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth (laughs) where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. From 2 Corinthians. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And back to the Gospel of Matthew, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So what I see in scripture is a story that is so much bigger than this earth right here. And because of that, I can't let my first priority be earthly success or material comfort because those things are transient. I can't let my first priority be my body because sooner or later it's going to fail me and in some ways it already has. I can't let my first priority be my family and my friends for as much as I love them, they are not Jesus. And if such things cannot be my first priority, then they cannot be the measure by which I evaluate my relationship with God or my trust in him. Because if the sole focus of my trust in God is whatever this world can offer, then I'm not truly trusting God. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying God is oblivious to our physical needs or uncaring about our circumstances. Scripture is incredibly clear that God is a faithful provider. He takes care of his children. But when we look thoroughly and holistically at Scripture, and frankly, when we look unflinchingly at the living conditions of beloved image bearers around the world, we have to recognize that our standard of living is not the standard of God's goodness. Our comfort and convenience here on earth are not God's primary concerns. And so if God is not content to be an intermediary between me and the things I really want, then again, what does it mean to approach him on his own terms, to trust him wholeheartedly, regardless of what I think he could do for me? As we consider this question, I want to direct our focus this morning to Psalm 27, a psalm of David. And I'd love to read this aloud for you. Feel free to follow along in your Bibles or on the screen, or just close your eyes and let the words wash over you. And as I read, I invite you to listen for how David expresses his trust in God. He says, The Lord is my light. And my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble, He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. 
and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me. But the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What I see here is a striking example of what it looks like to trust God not for what he can do, but simply for who he is. Amidst painful circumstances which he cannot manage alone, David turns to the Lord And we see three overarching expressions of that trust, of that surrender in this psalm. And I'd love to just walk through them together. He expresses his trust in God, first through proclamation, and then through petition, and finally through peace. So let's start with the proclamation as we proclaim the truth about God and the truth about ourselves. The psalmist gives us three truths to consider. First, in verse 1, we proclaim our need for God, but we do this indirectly through three assertions about who God is. Notice the names that the psalmist uses for God here. God is our light. He is our salvation. He is our stronghold. And why are these significant? Well, we need God to be our light because our lives are dark, and without him, we would lose our way. We need God to be our salvation because we're broken people. And apart from him, we could never heal ourselves. We need God to be our stronghold because life is hard and the world is dangerous. And he is the only one strong enough and wise enough to protect our hearts. If we were 100% self-sufficient, we wouldn't be in search of light or salvation or a stronghold And we wouldn't particularly care that God provides these things. But because we're not self-sufficient, we're invited to trust the one who is. So we proclaim our need for God, and we also proclaim God's power in our lives. David speaks in verses 2 and 3 about his enemies. And we know from 1 and 2 Samuel that David was a man of war. He faced a lot of enemies in battle, and he also spent a good chunk of time on the run from King Saul. 
I don't know about you, I can't exactly relate to those circumstances, but we still have enemies that we fight. Theologians talk about the world, the flesh, and the devil as the enemies of our souls, and we know these enemies well. We constantly find ourselves swimming upstream against culture, against the world, fighting fleshly, sinful desires, renouncing the devil's lies, temptations, and accusations in favor of God's truth. But David proclaims that God is more powerful than his enemies, and we can say the same. When sinful desires eat up our flesh, by the power of Christ, they stumble and fall. Though the world encamp against us, our hearts shall not fear. Though the devil arise against us, yet we will be confident. Why? Because God is omnipotent, and he is on our side. So we proclaim our need for God. We proclaim God's power in our lives. And third, we proclaim our security in God's presence. The psalmist expresses a longing in verse 4 to be in God's presence, to dwell in his house, to be in his temple, to gaze upon God. There's a sense of deep security in the image of being in God's house. And he builds on this idea of security as he talks in verse 5 about hiding in God's shelter. Scholars agree that the shelter referenced here in verse 5 is God's temple. But notice again that this is David writing. Solomon's temple, in all of its grandeur, wasn't built yet. So at this point, God's temple was a tent. And I don't know about you, but if I were in the heat of battle, I probably wouldn't pick a tent as my shelter. I'd like something a little sturdier, a little more structurally sound. <laughs> but David is confident in God's tent, not because the tent is anything special in itself, but because God lives there. It's not the structure that makes it secure. It's the God who dwells there, who keeps us safe from our enemies. So we express our trust in God through these proclamations. But we also join the psalmist in petition in verses 7 through 12, with the psalmist, we petition for close relationship with God. We might not always think about petition as an act of trust, but then again, why would you bother petitioning someone unless you thought they could do something about it? Unless you thought they were strong enough and gracious enough to grant your request? When we petition God, we communicate to him and to ourselves that we believe God is strong enough and wise enough and kind enough to pay attention and to act on our behalf. And this isn't about asking God for a million dollars or a life of quiet comfort. What the psalmist seeks from God is not material comfort or, interestingly, even material sustenance but he seeks God himself. He seeks God's face, and we are invited to do the same. This is important to notice and particularly striking because in the heat of danger 
as we see in verse 9, the psalmist's concern is not for a change in circumstances. He's not asking God to go out and slay his enemies. There are plenty of psalms that do request that, some of them in pretty significant detail. And we know that God does defeat the enemies of our souls. But the psalmist's vulnerable prayer here is not for God to draw his sword. It's simply for God to draw close. He doesn't pray for escape from his situation. He only prays that God would be with him, that God would not abandon him. How often do we yearn for a change in situation? How often do we look to our circumstances to give us peace? Right? Like, if only I had more money or higher status or better health, then I'd finally be content. But deep down, we know that's not true. David could ask God to slay his enemies, but dead enemies wouldn't keep him safe, nor would they give him love. And then what would he do when more enemies came? So instead of asking God to change his circumstances, the psalmist asks God to be near. We see in verse 4 that he asked to dwell in God's house, to gaze upon God's beauty, right? He wanted to be close to God and to be with God. And here, in verses 7 through 12, he continues his expression of that trust, of that desire, the deeply human and deeply right desire to be with God. We long to see God's face, to hear God answer our cries, because the face and the voice of our beloved are beautiful to us. We want to learn his way, that we may be in step with him. We want him with us, to not abandon us. And so we petition him for his presence and his intimacy with us. And the best part is that because he's God, we don't petition in vain. We ask God to draw close, and he does. Our God is ever-present, ever-pursuing us. He might not change our circumstances, but he will be with us in whatever circumstances we face. In him, we are never alone. So we proclaim who God is. We petition for closeness and intimacy with God. And this allows us to rest in God's peace, as the psalmist does in verses 13 and 14. We believe that we shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And we wait for the Lord. And I want to highlight two things in particular from these two verses. First, notice that last part of verse 13. It could be easy to skim over, but it's important to recognize that the land of the living is this world. With the psalmist, we believe that we shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in this life on earth. In the middle of suffering and pain, we can have hope right now because God is good right now and we will see his goodness in our lifetime. 
And second, none of this comes from our own strength, right? Knowing God, seeking him, resting in him, these aren't things we can do on our own. Our English translations often render verse 14 with phrases like, be strong and let your heart take courage. That's what I read this morning. But a more literal rendering of the Hebrew would say, be strong and he will strengthen your heart. Only through his strength and his grace are we able to live as he invites us to live. Trusting God and living in his peace is not a matter of gritting your teeth, accomplishing something. It's just a matter of opening yourself to God and to his kind, gentle work in your heart. So what does it mean to trust God? Well, it's not about demanding that God give us our way. It's also not a destination where we finally arrive when we're super Christians. Instead, trust is a journey of learning to believe that God is truly enough for us, regardless of circumstances. It's a slow practice, moment by moment, of knowing God, seeking God's face above all else, and letting him transform our hearts. And as he transforms our hearts, our lives will reflect that transformation. As I think about seeking God's face and focusing on him, I think back to when I was learning to ride a bike. I was a fairly timid child, so I was definitely later than a lot of my peers in finally getting rid of the training wheels. And there were a lot of things that made it pretty difficult for me to master this bicycle. But one thing was that I would constantly look down at my feet. I'm not entirely sure why, if I was trying to, like, make sure I was still pedaling or something like that, but I couldn't make myself look up. I was always looking down. As you can imagine, that didn't go very well. And so my uncle gave me this piece of advice as I was learning to ride this bicycle. He said, Lydia, stop looking down at your feet. Keep your eyes where you want to go. I clung to this advice. And I would repeat it out loud to myself as I was riding this bike and making myself look ahead of me instead of down at my feet. Keep your eyes where you want to go. And I think it's the same way in our faith. We're so tempted to look down at our circumstances, or maybe we're looking around at what the world offers or what other people are doing in comparison or envy. But what if we would just look up and look forward? What if we saw God's face? What if, as the author of Hebrews tells us, we would run this race with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, our purpose, our source, our destination? If you're wondering more about what it looks like to seek God's face or are not sure where to go with that, we do recognize as the body of Christ that there are practices and rhythms that are truly helpful and instrumental in this, right? Like reading scripture and praying and seeking accountability are truly formative and important. But I also invite you to reach out to Pastor Aaron or Pastor Andrew or one of the elders 
because I know they would love to guide and disciple you as you seek and as we all seek to grow with the Lord because we know that life with God is a life of relationship, not a life of checklists. And so as we close, I want us to hold the words this morning of Romans 8. These are familiar words for a lot of us, but I invite you this morning to not let the familiarity lull you. Pay attention to the complete ramifications of what it is that Paul is saying here. If the passage stirs a strong reaction in you, name the reaction. And then make space in your heart for God to show you his love. So Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Beloved, that is why we can trust God, because we dwell in the love of Christ, and Christ is enough. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your presence with us, we thank you that in all things, whatever may come, you are faithful. And so we just ask as we go forth this morning, as we step into our weeks, that we would keep our eyes on you, that we would remember always in every moment that you are with us and that your presence is truly enough. Lord, we love you. We trust you. And we long to love and trust you more. Amen.